Hey, Double Shifters, it's Catherine. We are staying cool in the summer heat and are hard at work on season two. But in the meantime, I wanted to share a few exciting things with you. First off, I'm so excited to share that I'm coming to the Bay Area as part of the Fuck Mom Guilt World Tour. On August 14th, I'll be hosting an all-star panel lineup at Sphere Coworking Space in Oakland. Panelists for that night include Kate Torgerson, founder and CEO of Milk Stork, family activist Mia Birdsong, and author and columnist Vanessa Hua. Then on August 15th, I'm co-presenting a live show of Fuck Mom Guilt with Lauren Schiller of Inflection Point at Beta Brand in San Francisco's Mission District with special guest KALW radio host and co-host of the Stoop podcast, Hana Baba. Both nights are going to be very special and tickets are limited. So get your tickets now. Go to thedoubleshift.com slash events. That's thedoubleshift.com slash events or check out your show notes for this episode. See you there. And now, speaking of Inflection Point, we have a very special episode of that show we'd like to share with you. Our season finale, episode 10, was all about paid family leave and how Erin Grau and her colleagues at the New York Times challenged the idea of good enough family leave. We covered a lot of ground with that episode, but family leave is such a big issue there's no way we could get to every angle on it in one show. So that's why we want to keep the ideas and conversation going by sharing this great interview from Inflection Point with Lauren Schiller. It's a podcast and nationally syndicated public radio show from KALW and PRX about how women rise up. In this episode, she's joined by Katie Bethel, founder and executive director of Paid Leave for the U.S., also known as PLUS who shares some really compelling stories, talks nerdy government logistics, and offers some extremely practical advice on how we can use this particularly potent moment to push for political change. I'll let Lauren take it from here with this episode of Inflection Point. The U.S. is one of two countries in the world that doesn't offer any sort of parental leave. Like, two in the world. The other one is Papua New Guinea. I know you've heard that stat before, but it bears repeating because it's crazy. So back in 1993, we got the Family Medical Leave Act, or FMLA. But it only provides the promise that if you do take an eligible leave, you won't get fired from your job for up to 12 weeks. But you don't get paid while you're off. As a consequence of that, right now, one out of every four people who give birth in America are back at work within 10 days of giving birth. 10 days. Because you can't afford to take the time off, or your company isn't covered by the Family Medical Leave Act. Or like me and my producer, you may be freelance. This act also left out caring for grandparents and grandkids, same-sex couples, people who work for companies with less than 50 employees, and a whole lot more. A few states stepped in to remedy this with paid family leave, like New Jersey, Rhode Island, and California. But when all is said and done, most people are left out. But this may be about to change. We were starting to see this, like, upswell of, like, women's political empowerment. Big companies were starting to put out press releases bragging about their parental leave. Um, So they were starting to view supportive employees in a different way. So all of those were indicators to me that not just, you know, paid leave is important, paid leave is something I want to work on. But the third really important element is we can win this. And as soon as you have those things together, you have to go, right? Because those windows of opportunity to win major transformational policy change do not come along very often. Katie Bethel is the executive director and founder of Paid Leave for the U.S., or PLUS. She's working to get everyone access to paid family leave. We started out in workplaces um, because the this is ultimately about families, but how families are interacting with work. So we really needed to change workplace culture. We also do work educating the general public, mobilizing the public. And of course, the most important thing we do is persuade legislators to vote yes on the policies that are going to help families. 
In February of this year, Senator Kirsten Gillibrand and Representative Rosa DeLauro sponsored the Family and Medical Insurance Leave Act, which, if you spell it out, the acronym kind of spells family. So the Family Act, unlike the FMLA, would guarantee paid family and medical leave. Other politicians are offering up ideas to support families, too. Senator Elizabeth Warren has universal child care on her platform. Senator Patty Murray introduced the Child Care for Working Families Act. And we do have a record number of women raising their hand to run for president in 2020, which may be why we're seeing more leadership around this kind of policy. But this isn't just a women's issue. It's an everyone who cares about anyone issue. And to care for someone, you need time. The international minimum recommended by the World Health Organization is 14 weeks of maternity leave. We know that doctors recommend a minimum of six months of bonding time with a new baby. We talked in an earlier episode of the show about providing a basic income, which could allow caregivers to be essentially paid for their work. Today, we're talking about paying workers for their caregiving. This would be a radical system shift, and not just for women. Because millennial men, for the first time ever, um, I think it's something like two-thirds of millennial men expect to have equitable caregiving responsibility to a female partner. Um, Like, nobody thought that before. In order to achieve equality for women at work, we have to achieve equality for men at home. But Katie says changing the system so radically starts with something radically simple. Find the decision maker and talk to them. I mean, for anybody who wants to like do any sort of organizing, the way that you win a campaign is you identify who can make the decision um, and what do I need to do to make the world in which they side with me look awesome um, and the world in which they disagree with me look terrible. This is Inflection Point with stories of how women and all of us rise up. I'm Lauren Schiller, talking today with Katie Bethel of PLUS. I mean, the first thing to know about PLUS and about me is that I'm a super nerd about highly effective strategy and learning from what has worked for others. So when I started PLUS three and a half years ago, I looked at the movements that had recently been really successful. So marriage equality, um, the emerging conversation about minimum wage, um, both of those campaigns were focused on a single solution. Um, in this broader landscape, like achieving marriage equality is not the same as achieving equality in all things for the LGBT community, right? But it was one important piece. Um, Same with minimum wage. Achieving economic equality in America is going to take way more than a $15 minimum wage, but it had this breakthrough potential to really move forward. I saw that capacity and ability in paid family leave um, and so formed PLUS to do that single focus See, I call it a single solution focus. It's not a single issue focus because paid leave is actually about a lot of different issues. And so that focus allows us to have a multi-layered strategy. So how did you get into this work? Um, I came at it sort of backward. So the usual journey to supporting paid family leave is you have a reason that you need it. Um, A baby is born um, or a child comes to your family. You need time to welcome that child to the family. Um, A parent becomes seriously ill and needs you to, you know, drop everything and go and help. Um, Or actually half of the people in America who are using unpaid leave right now are using it for their own medical condition. So I need to go to cancer treatments. I need to recover from hip replacements, that sort of thing. So the normal path is you're like bopping along and then life happens and you go, oh, my gosh, like I can't believe people are doing this without support. But my journey was the opposite because I am a nerd. Um, so I started working on paid family leave in 2006, um, really as a as a feminist who wanted to fight for women's equality. And I looked at all of the data of where are the barriers to women's equality. And one of the most startling graphs um, that you can look at is one where you look at age of woman and then career progression. Um, and you see that right around like late 20s, early 30s, there starts to be this big divide um, between the way that a man's career is progressing and a woman's career is progressing. So the thing that's happening in that time is you're getting caregiving responsibilities. A lot of that is becoming a parent, but some of that is also that you have aging parents who you're taking care of too. So 
paid family leave, women's equality right there. I can give you so many stats that I'm sure we have plenty of time to get to about how paid leave helps with women's equality. But then I grew up and I had a family of my own. And the first time I needed family leave was when my father-in-law was sick with cancer. Um, and he, we knew that he wasn't going to make it. We had his final um, three weeks of life, and my husband and I were able to be there with him. And what I thought about in that time was not just that there's like tactical support that a person needs when they're in that end of life period, both my father-in-law and my mother-in-law going through saying goodbye to her husband, but that moment is, you know, escorting someone out of, you know, in their last weeks of life, that's the most one of the most important things you can do. Um, and I, you know, the conversations that my husband was able to have with his father in those last moments of life, I went from understanding paid leave as something that made sense economically and sort of practically into understanding that it's something that enables families to hold together in the most important moments of their lives. Um, and so that's what really brought me to the issue. So what were the circumstances that allowed both of you to be able to take time off to be with him? Well, I was working at an organization called Moms Rising, um, which had a great family leave policy. And I think also it's really easy for people in um, sort of white collar professional kind of jobs to take for granted the relationship that you have with a manager where, um, you know, my husband's company was brand new. They didn't have a policy on the books yet. Um, but they just said, oh, like your your dad needs you. Go. Um, and you think about somebody who's working at, at uh, you know, a factory floor, warehouse, um, you know, working in the fields. Like they, they don't have a relationship or the power um, in their employment to be able to negotiate on their own that kind of very reasonable approach to supporting an employee through an important moment in their lives. So that's why we need public policy to help people who aren't in that kind of negotiating position. Right. Because you can't – there are so many companies in this country you can't possibly go to every single one and get them to change it. Yeah. I mean, that's one thing that we get asked a lot because PLUS um, has a – Every year we do a report on the policies at the 60 largest private employers in the country. So that's a lot of retail companies, Walmart, Starbucks, um, CVS. um, And then it's like big consulting firms like Deloitte and and so forth. And um, those 60 companies that have such outsized place in our imagination as like the employers of America, they employ less than 1% of the working population of America. But it also removes the can I as a business afford this because there's some system that would be in place where they've already paid for it in essence. Yeah. I mean, this is really interesting. So when I was at Moms Rising 2006 to 2010, one thing that we did is uh, I lobbied for policy in New Jersey, a couple other states. We won in New Jersey. And the biggest opponent was the Chamber of Commerce. And What's one thing that's really changed since that time when I got dug back into this issue in um, 2015 and 2016 is we got this leaked memo from the Chamber of Commerce. They had pulled their own small business members and 70 percent of them support national paid family leave policy because of exactly what you're talking about. It levels the playing field for the smaller businesses that can't compete with the Googles and the Facebooks who are big enough that they can support that on their own. Could you just outline what is the status quo right now for leave? So um, one out of every four people giving birth in America are back at work within 10 days of giving birth. So just imagine that for a minute. Like, you you have given birth. Um, I had my daughter in 2010, um, emergency C-section. And I think about not, like, not just how tiny a two-week-old baby is, um, but also, like, the tremendous benefits that I – like, I wanted to breastfeed, right? Breastfeeding is really hard to do if you're pumping at the office at two weeks. It takes months to establish breastfeeding. Um, and then recovering from a C-section, I mean, that's a major abdominal surgery. People are literally going back to work bleeding in their chairs and on the factory floor. And, you know, one of the women that we worked with when we were campaigning to win 
at Walmart. Um, her name's Jasmine. She had was back at work one week after she had her son and back on her feet all day. And luckily for her, she didn't experience health complications herself. But her infant son, when they went in for the first baby well visit, something that she had to work really hard to schedule because scheduling options at Walmart is pretty limited. They said, something's wrong and we need to rush your baby to the hospital. So in those first fragile months, she actually ended up having to leave her job at Walmart because she didn't have the coverage that she needed to be able to prioritize the health of her son. And she she was an hourly worker. Mm-hmm. And she took one week because that was all she had for that was all she could pay or whatever. Afford. At the time, yeah. they had unpaid leave. Okay. So Jasmine is one of the women who's a part of this group at Walmart called Respect the Bump. That's all about making sure that Walmart is literally supporting and enabling women who are pregnant to be able to work. Their first big campaign was getting Walmart to honor doctor's notes requesting light duty for pregnancies that were more at risk. So... All of us who are in jobs where we have the ability to meet one-on-one with our managers, who have the ability to build those relationships, that is not the experience for most Americans. And in fact, we talk about 85% of Americans don't have a single day of paid family leave. For low-wage working people, that number is 94% don't have a single day of paid family leave. So for Jasmine, the choice was... Am I there for my son in the hospital or do I have a job? Um, And she chose her son. So what made Walmart change their policy? So we looked at at Walmart. We said, all right, Walmart's got a CEO. That's our decision maker. Really important, actually. Never, ever say to a company they should change. You say to a person at the company that they should change. I want to, like, shout that to the rooftop. Yeah. Well, just make – okay, so just, let's just pause on yeah. that for a second. So how, what's the distinction in if, terms of your approach? Yeah. So you always ask a person because a person has people they care about, constituencies that they care about, motivations, um, points of inspiration – A company is just a behemoth. It's just a machine. So you focus on the CEO of Walmart um, in this case. And we said, all right, like, what does the CEO of Walmart care about? CEO of Walmart cares about the brand, wants to have a really strong Walmart brand. Um, CEO of Walmart cares about investors. CEO of Walmart cares about um, the workforce. Do I have a motivated workforce? So we built a multi-pronged strategy that included consumers, workers, and investors, um, and brought all of them together to deliver a message to the CEO in the way that worked for that audience. For investors, it was filing a shareholder resolution, um, asking that Walmart equalize its paid leave policies. Um, For consumers, it was about sort of broad public support for what the workers were saying internally and externally, which was we want to be the low wage workers. We want to be treated equally to the people in the corporate office. Um, And by doing that, in a number of ways, over a period of about a year, we were able to achieve our objective, which was to create a world in which the CEO of Walmart thought that our world looked a whole lot better than the world where he disagreed with us. <laughs> right. So what? So um, even just d- d- burrowing even further down yeah. into this, how do you go about identifying those people within the investor group, you know, influencers in the consumer space and at the worker level that you can, I mean, I assume at some point you all had a meeting to sit down together face to face and we're like, okay, here's what we all care about and here's what we're going to go do. A campaign like in the model that we're using really requires excellent partners and institutions. So for the investor work, there's uh, this really awesome investor group called Zevin Asset Strategies, Asset Management. What they do is they leverage their portfolio to push from the investor side for companies to change on a number of issues. So they actually came to us and said, this is an issue we're interested in. And we said, we know exactly where to go with this. Um, For finding the 
leaders, um, the women who were working at Walmart who were ready for a change. We partnered with um, an organization that at the time was called Our Walmart, um, but now is called um, Organization for Respect. Um, I'm probably going to get that name wrong. I'm very sorry. Uh, <laughs> and um, that started with Respect the Bump and um, said they were already fighting for an increase in wages. And we said, we think that we can win this too. Do you want to work with us? And they said, yes. So we were able to partner there. Um, and then on the consumer side, who hasn't shopped at Walmart? So we were able to reach out to our broad network and say, who's ready to stand up and fight with these women who are fighting for equal treatment? So you're really, you're looking for the connections and yeah. kind of creating these constellations of people who are already raising their hand. Yeah. Yeah. And then identifying there are always new people who raise their hands, too. And um, it's really exciting and inspiring when you can meet someone who it's their first time speaking truth to power um, and they have an opportunity to speak out. I mean, just yesterday we had um, the at this advocate in Louisiana. Her name's Anna. Um, her experience was that her 12-week-old baby, um, she she cobbled together leave, which is what most people in the U.S. do today, and had used all of it up, went back to work, found out that her baby needed a serious um, heart surgery. And the only place they could do the surgery, she's in Louisiana, was at a hospital in Texas. So she didn't have any time off. So her baby was alone at the hospital in Texas, and she would work a full day in Louisiana and then every day drive the three hours to go be with her baby overnight, wake up, drive back to the office again and again and again. So we were able to put her directly on the phone with a senator that we've been working with, Senator Cassidy. He's a Republican in Louisiana um, who's been interested in parental leave but has been hard to move into broader caregiving leave. And we're able to have her say directly to him in person, this is why we need to think beyond parental leave. And this is my experience. And that's really at the heart of where this kind of change can happen when you can have people with real lives and experiences speaking directly to the decision makers about what they need to see in policy. This is Inflection Point. I'm Lauren Schiller. I'm talking with Katie Bethel, the executive director and founder of the advocacy group Paid Leave for the U.S., also known as PLUS. What is your ideal paid family leave? What does that look like? Well, I can tell you what my ideal is. Um, and I think what we're going to win first in the U.S. might not be that thing, right? So we have to be we have to be real. <laughs> <laughs> I think when we talk about paid leave policy and sort of what is an ideal policy, what people need to understand is that we're talking about making ch choice possible. So for some people, some some small percentage of those women who are back at work within 10 days are proud of that. And that's an accomplishment. And they're like in it. You know, they've made that choice and been in a position to make that choice. More power to them. Right. Like you do what feels right for you and your baby. Um, when I think about public policy, though, it's about saying, what is the what, what can we make possible for people who don't have the power to negotiate their own terms? Then I also look at, again, focusing on policies that are going to affect people who are the most vulnerable um, in job interruptions, I really want to see that the wage replacement that people receive from the social insurance program. So just to put a little box around that, um, most people understand what unemployment insurance is and that you're like paying in a little bit with every paycheck in order to invest in unemployment insurance. And then if you lose your job, you can go on unemployment insurance and that creates a bridge for you, for your pocketbook, um, while you're looking for your next job. Family leave should work the same way, and the people who make the least amount of money should get the biggest percentage of their paycheck back. Um, other elements of policy, all families. So we need to have a broad construction of family. And this is especially important since, you know, one of the major, the biggest group of supporters for paid family leave is African-American women. And if you ask about what is the definition of family, how do you think about family? It's sisters, aunts, grandparents. Like family is a, 
a big idea. And so the kind of policies that we've seen that define family only as the nuclear family um, are really exclusionary in a way that doesn't support families who need this policy. Um, And then all kinds of work. So right now, the federal law that protects unpaid leave, so says you can't fire someone for needing time off for a baby um, or to take care of someone, it only applies to like 60% of the workforce. You have to work at a company with 50 employees or more in your location. So 40% of Americans can literally be fired for saying, I need to take the week off because, you know, I'm giving birth. (laughs) (laughs) So those are the core elements okay. that we look at. Not to be too, I, I know it gets a little wonky. Um, but yeah, all families, all types of work, six months, pay more to the people who make less. So in, a, in, in the course of a person's life, mm-hmm. right, they may, they may or may not have a baby. They may or may not have a sick relative. They mm-hmm. may or may not have a, be sick themselves, right? But in some cases, you might have all three of those mm-hmm. times two. So how do you make it – so just thinking in terms of equality, um, you know, and and I guess I'm, I'm thinking about the people who kind of gave me the side eye when I got to take 12 weeks off, mm. right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and they didn't because they weren't having a baby. Yeah. So how do you like, – what like how do you yeah. kind of envision yeah. addressing that question? So this is where we get into I think the role of men is really important. So when we are designing paid leave policy, it's really important that we think about the impact that that policy has on equality. And one way that we can ensure that paid leave actually helps to lower the gender wage gap, which it does, um, is to encourage men to take it too. Um, In some countries, they do that by having leave that's only available to men. Um, So if you say a lot of countries sort of focus their policy on per child. So like this baby gets 12 months with a parent and they can sort of split it up however they want, which is kind of cool, right? But they'll say like, and one of those months can only be taken by dad um, or only be taken by non-birthing parent um, unless there's no second parent and then fine, (laughs) right? Which is true of half Mm -hmm. of families in this country. Um, New children in this country are born to single mothers. So it's really important that we include that in our policy. So I think that um, if we're talking about building a culture in which leave is possible um, and where we're ending inequality or undoing inequality as opposed to exacerbating it, we need to make sure that it's something that everyone is using. And we also need to build a workplace culture that understands that this is already happening Like when I talk to employers about paid leave, they're like, oh, you know, what would I do if someone was out? And that's really the wrong question. Like the what they should be thinking about is I employ human beings and human beings have bodies that are fragile and something is going to happen to some of my employees. Something is already happening to some of my employees. And so how do I, as a smart business person, build a company in which that person's thing happening doesn't destroy my business. They should already be doing that. And paid family leave is actually just an insurance policy that helps you do that better and for cheaper. And is that because if you have a valuable employee, you want them to come back? You don't want them to be putting their job at risk? Or is it because it costs too much to go find someone else? Or is it because, like, why is that a kind of a business person's world? Yeah, I mean, paid leave is smart business practice because it allows you to keep and retrain keep and retain high-quality employees. Um, It also builds employee morale. And the insurance policy itself means that, well, I'll start with an example. So California is one of the six states that has statewide paid family leave policy. Um, We've had it for about 12 years. And it provides partial wage replacement from the state when an employee is out. So I run my organization in California. We've had four babies in the three years that we've existed as an organization. And for the employees in California, um, in order to pay for their paid leave, that's actually subsidized by the state program. So my employees get 60% of their wages through the state program, and then I top up. And I use that money that I'm not spending on their salaries to get contract help 
to help over the period of time um, for their leave. So that's why small businesses want paid leave um, and how it helps them. I'm Lauren Schiller, and this is Inflection Point. So more and more companies are seeing why having a comprehensive paid leave policy is good for the business and good for employees. But what about when you work but aren't anyone's employee? If we're looking at transformational change to our system, what can we do right now to prepare for the gig workers who will also need to be caregivers one day? On the one hand, right now, a gig worker has the same deal as an employee. As your own boss, your job will be there for you when you're able to return and start hustling again. But without pay, how long can you realistically take time away? It brings us back to asking the bigger question. How might we give everyone the opportunity to care for another person without putting our livelihood and our own well-being at risk? Workplaces aren't really going to exist the way that we think that they're going to exist, the way that we understand them now. Um, that's already happening. And I think, what is it, like 40% of Americans are doing some kind of either side hustle or as their core job, um, something in um, independent contractor work. So we absolutely need to design paid leave policy to support those folks. And in Massachusetts and Washington, two other states that have paid leave, they've started to do that. I mean, one way you do that is you make sure that um, when you set up the system, you're using systems that those employees are already interacting with. So at the federal level, you can do that using infrastructure through like the Social Security Department, right? Like they already know all the people, all the people are already writing to them. Like, <laughs> so it's like sort of wonky policy stuff. Um, but it's an opportunity, I think, for America to have a really exciting, fresh, new approach to supporting a labor force. And when we think about that sort of policy design, paid leave is one of the most fully baked new transformational policies that's on the table right now. Um, Six states already have it. It's in D.C. We have bipartisan support in Congress. We have the support of the White House. Um, Like all of those things are coming together. And that means it's a moving train that we can start to put things like, how do we solve for gig economy workers? Like this can be the place where we answer that question. Yeah. Um, And that's really exciting. One one of the one of the big things that's happened um, in your favor in in the past month or so um, was an audience with the Ways and Means Committee, mm-hmm. which I, I was like, "What is the Ways and Means Committee?" I just admit I was a poli sci major. I still had to go look up how our government works, but they're I mean they make decisions around taxation, right? Mm-hmm. So why was that a win? Um, in terms of the work that you're, you're yeah, doing. Yeah, yeah. Oh, you really want to nerd out. I okay. want to nerd out. Okay. I'm assuming so, you listeners want to nerd out um, too. <laughs> we have bicameral government system, House and Senate. Um, the House controls the purse. Um, so the Ways and Means Committee is the selected group of people in the House, of our representatives, um, of which there are 500 and some odd. Um, and those are the Ways and Means Committee is the what's called the Committee of Jurisdiction for anything related to money, um, how the Congress is spending money. Um, there is a finance committee in the Senate um, that this that is controlled by Republicans because there's more Republicans in the Senate. In the House, the Ways and Means Committee, Means committee is controlled by Democrats because there's more Democrats in the House. Um, the Finance Committee in the Senate is also a committee of jurisdiction, but ultimately the final decision about how money is spent by Congress happens in the Ways and Means Committee. So since what we're proposing is a new visionary federal program, um, that com- that is the committee that matters most. If they move our bill through the legislative process, the next step of the process is called markup. Um, if they actually move that through and vote it out of that committee, then that is the big signal that this bill is going to move. Um, and I think we'll be able to accomplish that this Congress. And is, does the bill have baked into it how it gets paid for? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, it's just a, just like unemployment insurance. It's a payroll deduction. And um, it ends up being less than $2 a week for most people. That sounds like a bargain. Yeah. (laughs) 
<laughs> What's the holdup? Well, okay, so now I've been watching the news and I'm hearing, you know, yes, there's bipartisan support, but there are some on the right who are saying, yes, but you have to give up your f- future social security in oh, order yeah. to pay for your caregiving now. So, um, <laughs> yeah. Okay. So, it's a deal um, with the devil. yeah, the, I mean, if you look at all the like media about paid leave right now, the question mark is like, how are we going to pay for it? Because yeah. that's what Republic- Republicans always ask that. Yeah. <laughs> um, Democrats, too. Like we all want to pay for things. Um, and so the proposal from Marco Rubio, um, first from Marco Rubio and then now being picked up by other senators, is that you would have to... Um, basically borrow from your future Social Security um, or take a hit in your future retirement payout in order to receive benefits for parental leave. Um, And we polled on that kind of solution in Louisiana, red state, um, 80 percent support overall among the general voting population for paid family leave in Louisiana. And that kind of approach where you're saying, I'll take less later in retirement, was actually less popular with Republican voters than it was with Democratic voters. So <laughs> I think it's dead in the water. Um, and we were working really hard to make sure Republicans understand that while that approach might be appealing to their way of thinking, it actually doesn't connect at all with the voters that they're trying to reach. There's probably there's got to be some psychological studies around that, too, like what people are willing to give up now oh, yeah. to mean, get later or give up later to get now. And and, and yeah. that goes I, I feel like that goes in the face of most people's desire for for the instant gratification. So it's even more I think, interesting that that it didn't. Pull well, well, I mean, just look at what's happening with money in America. I mean, it's like half of Americans don't have $500 in a savings account. Um, I think right now, one out of every seven working people in America has lost a job because of unpaid leave. So you think about like, how am I going to save for retirement in the context of I don't have $500 in in a savings account now? Um, And it's really scary, I think, to imagine that your Social Security, that one lifeline that you know is going to be there, would be even less than it already is going to be, Yeah, (laughs) you know? This is Inflection Point. I'm Lauren Schiller. I'm talking with Katie Bethel, the executive director and founder of the advocacy group Paid Leave for the U.S., also known as PLUS. So I want you to... Tell me about some of the radical change that you've been able to make as a result of your work. You only started this organization four years ago. And mm-hmm. I and I know that radical action, even though like the joy of overnight success, you know, is is always a wonderful promise, but that's not the reality. So what are what's something that you've been working on lately that you are super excited to have seen come to fruition? I know Walmart is one that we talked yeah. about. Yeah. And Walmart's just one of the companies. So the thing that I'm most proud of that we've accomplished to date is we've been able to win paid leave policies for about 5 million people around the country through our work with private sector employees. Some of that has been through Walmart-style campaigns, but a lot of it has been through teaching people how to be advocates within their own companies. And those advocates that we've built through those wins have now become our core advocates for the legislative work that we're focusing on. the important points about those 5 million people, we emphasized low-wage working people because what we saw was that a lot of the conversation about paid leave ends up being about how do professional women have it all. And I think that's really – it's not the wrong conversation, but it's a very limited slice of what family leave is really about, which is about the ability to put family – first as sort of the cornerstone of society. So 5 million people, employers, and then the other piece besides low-wage workers is getting paid leave for men. Um, a lot of companies that we, when we started working with them, only had maternity leave. And, you know, good, we need maternity leave, but we're not going to achieve women's equality at work unless we have men also using the leave that's available to them. So, I, you know, I was so pissed off when I started this work because I was looking at, and I'm sorry to shout them out, but I was looking at Working Mother magazine 
and they had their like list of like top 100 places to work. And in the top 10 were companies that only offered dads two weeks of leave. There might have even been one that didn't offer any. And you can't say that you're a company that supports women in the workplace if you're not also enabling men to do that. And so that's a really big deal. And I'm really I'm proud to have been a part of driving that conversation and taking that cultural shift and turning it into meaningful policy change. Yeah, I mean, that's I, I think that the heartache of that desire and expectation you know, being dashed when you actually go into the real world. We as young girls were told we could be anything we wanted to be. Yeah. <laughs> and you hit the real world and they're like, actually, no, you can't. Yeah. You know, you want to be a good, you want to stay with your kid more? Sorry, you have to come to work. Yeah. I mean, I think about my own experience with my husband where we, he had two weeks off right after my daughter was born. And that was great because my body was a mess. <laughs> So I needed the help. Like, yes, baby needed help too, but really me. Mm-hmm. Um, but then after my three months of leave, he took month four for the full month and was home alone every day with the baby for a month. Um, and that completely transformed our relationship, the way that we took care of our daughter um, to to the degree that to this day, like dad is the one that she wants to see when she has a boo-boo. I think when we imagine equality in parenthood, there's so much in just making sure that men have the space to be parents and non-birthing parents have the space to build that connection um, beyond just the childbirth recovery period. Yeah. So what's in the way? Like, why why wouldn't this already be baked into our system? And like, what is cropping up that is making it I mean, it sounds like things are going well, but like what, you know, why aren't we already set up this way and what could stop us? Yeah. Yeah. So um, there's a super nerdy historical reason. It's a short story that I will tell you now. Um, So another way that people frame this question is how come Europe has this stuff and we don't? Right. So the answer is post-World War II reconstruction. So in the post-World War II era, all of the men in Europe had died. And it it was a horrible war. And what the economists and politicians who needed to rebuild all of the countries in Europe, what they realized was that they needed women to be able to work, to work in factories, to work as doctors, to actually create a functioning society. And they needed the population to regrow. And so as an economic stimulus... They put in place maternity leave, uh, child care, universal child care, um, health care support, public education systems and workplace training. They did everything they could to enable women to serve those two roles to rebuild their countries. In the U.S., we told a different story. And I mean, it was our boys are coming home. Um, and policymakers at the time, and let's just call out some heavy patriarchy here, said, oh, yeah, like our boys are coming home. All you and let's call out some racism too. all you white ladies um, who've been going into the factories, <laughs> um, you need to go home and, you know, make room and take care of, of your husbands. So that the, the racism being that that if you're that a person women, of color, you stick around and do the hard. Yeah. Hard work, I mean, mean, in America, like women of color have been working hard and doing to, you know, doing the what the second shift since the beginning of this country. Um, And so much of this conversation has centered on the experience of white women um, that I think it's really important to note that like that that narrative in the 50s had buried within it assumptions about what is the role of 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 women, what is the, we are only going to look at the experiences of white women, um, and we're gonna design policy around that story. That's why the stories that we tell about families matter so much, because when you're building policy around it, it's very easy to get very narrow in the way that you solve these problems in a way that excludes the people who you're trying to help the most. So, okay, so women were, white women were told to go home, make babies, men are gonna go back and take the jobs. Mm Um, but then, of course, the, the 60s happened. <laughs> there was some outrage. There was some outrage. There was some outrage. But there was no systemic. There was really very little systemic shift in, shift in terms of 
correcting for that? Yeah. I mean, we almost had universal child care. Um, you know the story. Well, go ahead and tell it. Well, we it, universal child care was passed out of the House and Senate and then vetoed by the one and only Richard Nixon and never came up again. Like we have totally missed um, that opportunity to have child care available to everyone, which is another. I mean, these issues are all so interconnected, um, but another like huge stimulus to both helping families and the economy at the same time. Um so I was scrolling through Twitter the other night, which is really a terrible habit to do right before you go to bed. But I came across this interview um, with Margaret Atwood, who said that we're, we're heading for a time when health coverage will be removed for pregnancy and childbirth. Abortions will be illegal. You know, she's, she's the one that wrote The Handmaid's Tale and has this very you know grim and dark vision of what our future could look like. Although, if you watch it, it is a little terrifying because there are glimpses of our current reality. Um, you know, we do sort of have these dark forces that are trying to, you know, wave their dark cloak <laughs> over um, women's control over their own bodies, let alone their own time. So do you ever think about that? And I mean, you know, this sort of like the, the dark side. <laughs> <laughs> um Sure. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, I mean, is yeah. that potentially I mean, because we talked about, you know, classism and racism and, you know, <laughs> and World War Two. But I mean, is there and the patriarchy? Right. But like, is there I, I don't know, without sounding like a complete alarmist, you know, this sort of um, force that is trying to basically undermine everything that yeah. would allow a woman to control her own destiny. And could, is that something yeah. potentially we need to be on the lookout yeah. for? Yeah, I mean, I have two two reflections on that point. Um, the first is that I think it's really important that in these times where we see these forces emerging, that we remember that they come from people. People are the ones who can make decisions. Um, there, yes, we perceive these sort of narrative arcs and flows in history. Um, and also, all of those things are driven by the day-to-day decisions of people in power. And so it's incumbent upon us to demand different from those people in power and not get lost in the sea of narrative um, and really focus on who's making these decisions, how do I make it so their world looks better if they side with me, or how do I build enough power that what they're saying doesn't matter? Um The second thing that that makes me think about is that we have to view um, major social change, I think, as sort of a pendulum or a cycle. Um, After great movements forward for social justice, there is always pushback. Um, And I think one mistake that I see some progressives making is viewing that pushback as a sign of defeat instead of actually as a sign of great success. Like in some ways we are seeing this upsurge in, you know, white supremacy and misogyny because we have made such huge strides in undoing racism and sexism in the Western world. And so we can learn from that and say, all right, we're going to make this the next big change that we're going to make. What can we know that backswing is going to happen? It happens every time. So what are we doing to prepare for that? And what are we doing to prepare for the backswing, but also to make sure that when we have that momentum to do that forward push for more justice for more people, we're pushing it as far as we can so that the backswing doesn't get quite as far. <laughs> so what what's the what's the best advice that you've ever been given about how to advocate for what's important to mm. you person to person? Yeah. So um I think the most important thing when you're doing when you're advocating for specific changes, so which is different from doing like community organizing where you're trying to bring people together to do collective problem solving. There are lots of social change models. The model that I operate in is advocacy. I want to get a real person in power to say yes to doing a thing or to stop doing a bad thing in a way that transforms the relations of power. So in that context, um, Obviously, it needs to be a real person, right? There's always a person who can decide. And if there's not a person who can decide, then you're trying to tackle a problem that's too big. Um, The other thing that I think is really important is 
it's you can't win everything all at once. Um, but you also should never compromise before you start. So when I think about the fight for paid family leave, um, one of the things that I heard a lot um, when I was working in the States um, is I would sit down with a policymaker. We would look at a policy proposal that was pretty modest, and they would, and I would say, this doesn't seem bold enough. Like, I think that we can do more, you know, like the current Democratic proposal for family leave is 12 weeks of leave when doctors are recommending six months. So why aren't we offering, why aren't we asking for six months? Um, and the answer is often, well, we don't think that Republicans will ever sign on to something that's six months. So then the follow-up question is, well, are they signing on to 12 weeks? Well, no. Um, <laughs> so I think... It's a negotiation. Like this kind of advocacy is all about staking ground on what you actually want, what will actually solve the problem, coming to the table with a full, bold vision of a solution. And then where there's compromise, make sure you're getting points for that. Like don't compromise before you start the conversation. Um, actually lay it out and then fight for what's best. As the most powerful country on Earth, the U.S. could build up a little more muscle when it comes to supporting caretakers. And believe me, at some point, we will all need to care for someone or be taken care of. But right now, when a family member is in need or a new baby is born, we're asked to make an impossible choice between our own well-being and someone else's. With paid family leave, what's good for others is also good for ourselves and our workplaces. Sounds like a powerful win-win-win to me. Katie Bethel, the executive director and founder of Paid Leave for the U.S., or PLUS, believes everyone should have paid family leave. If you'd like to support paid family leave for your workplace or in our national policy, PLUS has tons of tools to help. I'll put a link to their website in the show notes and on my website at inflectionpointradio.org. This is Inflection Point. I'm Lauren Schiller with stories of how women and all of us rise up. That was Lauren Schiller speaking with Katie Bethel of Paid Leave for the U.S. Check out Lauren's podcast, Inflection Point, for more rising up stories. Thanks for listening, Double Shifters. Double Shifters.